Okay. Good morning. I'm almost set. I'm glad I'm among friends of Matt Kinneman. You're being patient with me. Dan, that was a, where are you? That was a good, that was a fun memory that you just brought up. Well, it's great to be here. It really is. I, I always feel like I'm among friends here at Calvary Chapel, and I look forward to being here. But I have to say, it's been a, it's been a busy weekend already. Uh, yesterday, I, I got the idea a few weeks ago that it would be, I won't say fun, but that it would be, it would be worth it to take a shot at, at becoming a delegate to, to the Republican National Convention. And don't worry, there's no political statement coming, except I will say it is an interesting year. So I went to the caucus yesterday. A, a caucus can be a crazy place, and, and it really was. And you know, it didn't, it didn't go my way yesterday, but something came out of the day that was, a, that was really a highlight. Uh, a while ago, I met a gentleman in, in my church back in, where well, the church is in Lenox, and we live in Lee, Massachusetts, right next door. And I met a gentleman in the church named Ray Phillips, who is, who is 90 years old. And he fought in World War II, survived a plane crash at about 18 years old. And he is one of these guys who, you know, sadly, we have very few of them left. They really are accurately called the greatest generation because they liberated the world, they built this country, and they think it's no big deal. They kind of go about their business quietly and don't ask for anything. They're not very self-expressive. They're not always posting their breakfast. And, and so Ray's just like that. He's very understated. And I felt like he really did me an honor by going to the caucus with me. I knew he'd vote for me. I knew I'd get at least one vote. But, but, he, but the, the, the beautiful thing was he spent his whole day with me. Now, he's 90. He doesn't have glasses. He doesn't have hearing aids. He can see great, from what I can tell. He can hear everything. I think he actually is much more perceptive than I am, which isn't a big challenge, but here's what happened. We're leaving the caucus. Now, we've been there. It's going really long. It's a huge turnout. Everything's taking a long time, and he's very patient, and we're finally leaving, and I think Ray noticed exactly what was happening, but when I got to the driveway of the Elks Club and we're leaving, I turned the wrong way. I didn't turn the way I, we came in from. I turned the wrong way, and I think he knew it right then, but he didn't say anything. I think he was being nice. He was letting me figure it out. So a couple miles down the road, I said, Ray, I don't think I went the right way. And he said, no, I don't, I don't recognize this way. And he already knew. So I turned around, went all the way back, and I had to run back inside for something. I came back out to the end of the driveway, and I said, Okay, I was kind of flustered, and I said, it really would have helped if I had just turned the right way in the beginning. And Ray, in his understated way, said, it makes a big difference. <laughs> so I was thinking about coming down to church this morning, really. I, say, I was thinking, Ray, that was the best. That was the best. I, I've got to find a way to work that in because it was, it, was, it was just a sermon, and so, in itself. So, 
really, I think the serious side of that is, you know, I'll tell you the truth, and some of you have felt the same way. You had busy days yesterday. You've had a hectic week or whatever time, and yet we're here. We made it. And the point is, being here and doing this next part too, is to head in the right direction, to make sure we're going in the right direction. It makes a big difference. So when we don't forsake the assembling of ourselves together, that's, that's one of the big reasons why. It makes a big difference if we can together stay headed in the right direction. So I am from, as Dan mentioned, I'm from a youth group, Christian camp director, um, teacher background. And in more recent years, I haven't been doing that. But it's like the 30-year chunk of time was, was that kind of work. And in that world, in that world of that kind of ministry, we tend to talk a lot in stories, which, which can be short on doctrine and kind of heavy on emotion and feeling. And sometimes that can get out of balance. And so we, we don't want to do that. It's an approach that typically appeals more to the heart than it does to the mind. And I, I noticed that as I went through those years that I wasn't sure sometimes what we were doing because we, we might have left some important teaching out when we were appealing to the heart. But at the same time, that approach can be extremely effective in successfully magnifying and amplifying the essence of an important Christian teaching. And that's the way we want to see it happen. In the, in, the ancient, in the ancient world, intellectually, the ancient uh, uh, scholastics, they, they were kind of down on the things of the emotions and the heart. It was, it was Augustine, when he wrote the Confessions, that was really a pioneer in this area, especially in, among Christian thinkers, bringing together the heart and the mind. The, the, the aspects that God has built into us that are, that are intellectual and need to be reasoned, and also those things that are feelings-driven. They're of the heart. And in Psalm 139, you know, this will sound familiar to some of you, search me, O God, and know my... test me and know my anxious, and see if there be any offensive way in me. And Augustine helped us in the, Christian, in the, Christian, in the journey of Christian thought to see the heart and the mind come together. So hold that thought for a second. I came across something of the mind several years ago. I've been, I've been interested in, in an author named George Gilder, who happens to live up near me in the Berkshires, who has written what I think are some, some profound books. Now, now, George Gilder is also a believer, and yet he's, a, in my mind, he's a, a giant of an intellectual pioneer himself. And he, he took some time in some of his writings to popularize an idea that came from somebody named Peter Drucker, who is known as kind of a management, business management um, insight uh, Yoda. He knows it. He's, he's a teacher. And one of the things Peter Drucker taught in his, in his business management career was something called the upside surprise. That is, when, when an entrepreneur sets out to, to build something, to build a business, to create an invention, many times what happens is the path is set this way, but something will occur that goes this way. And then it goes straight up. It's an amazing, unintended, unexpected discovery of something even better than what the path that was set out on promised to bring. 
the upside surprise. And some, one of the things that keeps us from the upside surprise, Drucker taught, is we get bogged down in our problems. We lose sight of what might be happening that could be really important and surprisingly good. So we want to pursue the upside surprise. And the way, we, the way Drucker said we do that is we don't solve problems, which we're all prone to really get bogged down and consumed by solving problems. He said, don't solve problems, pursue opportunities. And it's backwards from the way most of us, including me, think. We, 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 we get bogged on, we get focused on the problems. Okay, so that's a, that's a, there's a concept of the mind. We don't want to stay right there, but the upside surprise is, is, a, is, a, is an idea I ask you to keep now, right here, right to the side. The upside surprise, don't solve problems, pursue opportunities. But speaking again of the heart and the mind, Jonathan Edwards, in his teaching about, about how to uh, kind of unveil God's word, taught that it's only when you attach that kind of an abstract truth that we just were talking about to some kind of sensory experience or memory that the truth becomes real to the hearer. And again, the coming together of the heart and the mind. And I think the story of the prodigal son that Dan just read has a very immediate way of doing that. When you walk through the narrative mentally, it's all there. Promise that fell apart. Abandonment, desertion, alienation, sorrow, the brokenness of dreams. But that's not the whole story. There's something else that's there. And when, and when the homecoming starts to be described, you can see it, can't you? If you let, your imagination almost automatically takes you, your heart almost automatically takes you in that narrative to this, you can fill a canvas in your mind really almost with no effort if these very rich hues, this homecoming is happening. It's a surprising outcome to what looked like was going to be an, an endless tale of heartbreak and loss and disaster. So join a little bit on my youth ministry and camp days, where we talked a lot through stories. I'm hoping really to just do two things together this morning. One is say something that's true, and two is share something that will help in even a small way for us to change our lives. Let's see how we do. Now, when I was in seventh grade, I, I lived in Willimantic, Connecticut. We all lived in Willimantic, Connecticut in this little house with one bathroom, five teenagers, and shared bedrooms with sloping ceilings. We were cramped in. Dream house, right, Mom? So how we, how do, how we got to Willimantic uh, was really ironic. We, we had lived in Southern California. Now, in the late 60s, Southern California was kind of like the promised land. It wasn't all built up. It wasn't all paved over. It wasn't crammed with millions of people. It was beautiful weather. We literally lived in a neat little neighborhood. I'm not kidding you. To our south was a vineyard. To our west was the Pacific Ocean. To our east were snow-capped mountains. And to our north, to cap it off, glamour, L.A., Hollywood. It was all there. And we left. Go to Willimantic. <laughs> Willimantic, I think, translates most closely as 
this definitely is not Southern California. <laughs> but we were there for a reason. My dad was going to grad school, and, and it, was a, it was a step in a continuation of, of their ministry vision. So we spent seven years there in Willimantic, and it was a very memorable seven years. Um, and there's different ways to, to put meaning to that. But what, I was there in my seventh grade social studies class. Now, my brother Dan's four years older than I am, so... He, I followed him four years, on the same, four years later on the path that he had been. And I was in the social studies class that he had been in with the same teacher. And the teacher was using the same curriculum. And it turns out that my... You already know, don't you? You already know. It turns out my brother was an all-star. And in the eyes of this teacher, he was one of the best ever. And so four years later... I, I can tell you the name of the teacher, but I don't know if anybody might distantly be like three degrees related to him or something. So I won't. But the teacher said to me, your brother. Oh, I remember your brother. I miss your brother. You're nothing like your brother. Now, I know you feel bad for me on that. I know. But the, the, it's okay. In this, it's a good example, but it's okay for me because I, I actually truly agreed with my teacher. I, I was a big fan of my brother. I'd chase him around on you know, the ball field, and I was on the same little league team, and I was, I was a, the runt of the team. My uniform was too big. I'd sit way down at the end of the bench and hope the coach couldn't find me to put me in when the big guy was pitching against us. That's all true, when my brother would be out there hitting the ball over the fence, making dives at first base. And so I had no problem with what he said. But what he said, cause I, I, because I agreed 100% with it, and I was used to it by that point, but, but what he said wasn't the best thing to say, was it? It could have actually really hurt. Again, speaking of, speaking of Dan Kinnaman, he, uh, he was, I was listening to one of his sermon tapes, and he was saying that we each speak about 10,000 words a day. And it, if, we, if we recorded them all and put 500 words on a page, you know, it would, it would be about 20 books a year of, of about 200 pages each, maybe 30 books a year, 20 to 30 books a year of 200 pages each. And have to, you have to wonder what your book would read like. Mm-hmm. You might not want to, we might not want to read it. So when I, when I say that about the teacher, I have to, have to admit, too, we all do it. We all know we, we can't get words back, and, 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 and we often wish we could. Calvin Coolidge was reputed to be maybe our most quiet president, and he, he's, he's said to have said something like, I find I never have to explain things I haven't said. Mm-hmm. And... and too, too often I find myself wishing I could be more like Calvin Coolidge, you know, because it's really hard to get out of those situations, whether you're that teacher or you're one of us. The word, the tongue, our words have the power to heal and have the power to hurt. You know the book of James about this. No one can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. And Proverbs 18.21 says the tongue has the power of life and death. So it's sobering to know that, sobering to confront that. Can I do this? I know right where it is. Because in this, in this, in this life, we already experience so much pain. And then we find that so often our words cause pain. Other words that come to us cause pain. And, and, and the pain of this life is not summed up, is not caused just by the words that come our way or that we speak. That's just one little slice of the pain. So, 
so I think you can agree with me, although it turns, a little, it turns in a kind of a little bit of a darker, more sad direction here. Life is full of, it's full of pain. It just sometimes we feel we're just immersed and surrounded by, smothered by, crushed by our pain. And our pain is different from the next person's pain. I know that we say in situations where somebody's suffering pain, we sometimes say, well, it's not that bad. It's not that. You know, you did that or you lost that, but it wasn't that. But when it's your pain, it doesn't matter at all, right? Because you only can experience your pain. And your pain is as much as you can experience. So whatever it is, it's big. It's real. It's hard. And sometimes it's encompassing. What do we do? We certainly don't want our words to add to it. or We don't want to spread it. But words are only part of it. We live in this, we live in this world of pain. In the movie scene in The Princess Bride, you might remember, you already got it, didn't you? You might remember Buttercup says to the man in black, Wesley, but she doesn't know yet, the man in black, she says, you mock my pain. And he says, life is pain, Highness. Anyone who tells you different is trying to sell you something. When I first heard that line, I thought, no, it's not right. You know, youth ministry and stuff's not like that. Camp's fun. But as life goes on, you find out, yeah, you know what, it, 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 there's a, there is a view, there is a perspective in which that is totally true. Life is pain, and someone, anybody who tries to tell you different is trying to sell you something. But let's remember, we're, we're, we're dealing with things in which what is apparent is not necessarily the end of the story. Uh, Ravi Zacharias may be the greatest apologist who's ever lived, the greatest Christian apologist who's ever lived. And one of the points he's made about this, and he makes it all the time in his, in his, in his speaking, is that although, although many people will say, I can't believe in God in this world, there's too much pain to believe in God. God wouldn't allow this pain. And we want pleasure. We want things to be good in this world. We want things to be even better than good. We want, it, we want things to be perfect. And Ravi Zacharias points out, very insightful but simple, and I, I couldn't think of it till I heard him say it. You know, as we look for meaning in this, in this life, it's not dealing with pain. It's not too much pain that leads us to meaninglessness. It's actually too much pleasure that ends in meaninglessness. And that's one to think on and take with you a bit. Think it through. You find it's true. You look at examples all over the place, among the famous, among the not famous. It's not too much pain that leads to a meaningless life. It's too much pleasure. And we haven't exhausted our pursuit of pleasure. We're perfecting it and refining it and advancing it, and it's becoming cheaper and more accessible, and it's becoming more abundant. And yet, is meaning following in the same trajectory? No. We feel more, if we're not in... in in the fellowship of Christ, we feel more and more lost despite the pleasures that surround us. So pain is not really the problem that people have when they can't get to God, when they can't get to faith. In fact, I'll say one more thing, and, it's, and we'll come back. It's really only the Christian system, the Christian view, the teaching, the teaching that's, that's here in its wholeness, in its fullness, that actually makes sense out of pain, that gives pain a reason. That actually, if, if, we, if we follow it through, it, it, it infuses pain with meaning. You take that away, it's ironic, but if you take God out, 
And then there's no way to explain this life. There's no way to explain the pain if we take God out. So the pain doesn't negate God. The pain actually puts an exclamation point on what we know to be true about God, even though it's not the way we'd like to see it. It's the way it is. And when we can find meaning in pain, we're beginning to solidify our walk on the path of hope that God has called us to. C.S. Lewis said it this way, pain insists on being attended to. God, you could put parenthetically only, whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks to us in our consciousness. Our consciousness. He shouts to us in our pain. Pain is God's megaphone to rouse a deaf world. And Jesus said it was no secret. In this world, you will have trouble. Now, God meets us in our pain. And one of our jobs as his followers is to meet others in theirs. So we have some choices to make. And we're, we are going to circle right back to the prodigal son and cap, and cap things off with that. But, but on this same, in this same direction that we're going, we have some choices to make, and they're not complicated. In this, in this world of pain, the, the prodigal son narrative really is an is amazing picture, as we said, of the multifacets and layers of the world of pain that we live in. And then our choices, which I said, are not complicated. They really come down to two. As God meets us in our pain and our mission is to meet others in theirs, we can do nothing or we can do something good. That's the choice. Sometimes when we do something, it turns out to be something amazing. And that, out of our control, is part of the surprise we're going to talk about here in a minute. So let me, let me go back to Willimantic for a moment. And I want to tell you three quick vignettes, three quick stories that wrap up the, the that, gives some, that, gives, that gives some actual sensory um, and, and memory uh, kind of feelings to what we're talking about. So in Willimantic... It's like a lot of places back then, you know, a, kind of a, a mill town that's down on its, down on its luck and, and, and it's not what it once was. And we lived in one of those neighborhoods and, and we took the bus to school. There were no minivans or soccer moms. Everybody that took the bus or walked and the bus didn't have all the safety features on it. And, and it, it was just a kind of a crazy situation. And there's always somebody who gets picked on. And so... This is one of the saddest pictures of the Willimantic years that I have in my mind, but there was Bobby on the bus, and he was the guy. And on a, on a day when the sun was out, he, wore, he would wear a raincoat to school. And I'm sorry that, that, that this is the, the truth, but the reason he did that is because somebody one day thought it would be fun to spit on him. And then the gang got, everybody ganged in, got joined in and ganged up. And so there's a period of time there, short period of time, as I remember it, but he wore a raincoat to school, and I remember seeing him huddled in the seat with the hood up. It's a terrible picture. Nobody did anything. Same school, end of the day, you know, bell rings, everybody's out the door. City school, three stories, buses pulled up in the front. We had art. You never know what you're going to do in art. Our teacher tells you when you get there. So one day, we're supposed to cut out Something to make, I think, I think it must have been something to make, you know, for home, to take, to, maybe it was Mother's Day. I don't really remember that, but I remember this kid, Scott, he, he tried to make something nice. So he, he cut out, I guess, flowers out of the construction paper, 
And this would be, this would be a nice thing to take home. So it, it was kind of risky, though, because it, it, it didn't really work to carry that thing home. I mean, he was crossing the street, and I saw the kids descended on him, started to beat him up. His project goes flying, and he's crying. It might be fourth or fifth grade. That's not good either. They're dumb construction paper flowers. He's crying. The kids run off. Somebody else came along, helped him pick up the pieces. Another kid picked up the pieces, sent him on his way. Somebody did something. Okay, it was a start, right? Nobody did anything but that person. Somebody did something. I know, it's a kid's story. But you got it, though, right? So now fast forward a few years. First, the first, in the first case, nobody did anything. That was terrible. The second case, somebody did something. So now we've left Willimantic, and it's a whole different day. We're living here in Rhode Island. We're living in North Kingstown. And, and there's two brothers involved. And it doesn't matter which one's which here. There's two brothers involved, and, and it's, I mean, it's driver's license time. You can go where you want. We've got a beat-up old car, and something, something crazy happened. McDonald's had a sale. It's not here anymore, but it was over on Post Road. And that McDonald's had a sale. Five hamburgers for $1. Everybody was talking about it. It was, it, was, it was just too much to handle. There was no labeling, no calorie counts. There was, this was food. This was McDonald's. This was good food. Five hamburgers for $1. And, and, and the school was going nuts. This kid, Kurt, who lived up the street, he bought 100 of them and put them in his freezer. Nobody <laughs> could control themselves. So, so the two brothers thought, we're going we're gonna to take it. We're going to go after today. Today's the day. We're going to go. It's cold out. Each had a dollar. We go over there. It's exciting. It's just they didn't really do this, did they? They did. So we go in, and we, they, they had five hamburgers for a dollar, so we put down our dollar. We each got a bag of hamburgers. We get back in the car. You know the bumper sticker's life is good? Yeah. All right. Didn't need one. I mean, this was it. This, this was we're sitting there. We're driving home. We both have five hamburgers, and we're digging into the first one. And one brother says to the other, can I have one of your hamburgers? It's not even a fair question. What do you say? You've, they, we've got five. Leave me alone. Eat your own hamburgers. And the other brother looked at the brother who asked the unfair question and reached into his bag and went like this. And brother number one couldn't believe it and said something totally weird for kids that age. He said, God's really working in your life. He did something amazing. Why? Not because it was a hamburger. It went totally against the grain of everything that should have happened or was expected to happen. You can do something. You can do nothing. You can do something. Sometimes the little thing you do is going to turn out to be amazing in somebody else's life. Because it's going to be a huge surprise. God meets us in our pain. We meet others in theirs. And sometimes when we do that, we are granting such a surprise, an uplifting and helpful surprise, that it can change the person's life. Now, we're getting to something here because our faith really doesn't have much to do with routines. We know we need routines in life, right? 
We like our routines, and that's good. Some of the routines are good. Where you get your coffee, when you have it, how you fix it, favorite chair, what you like to do on Saturday morning, how you like to order your day after work is done. Routines are helpful. You organize certain spaces certain ways. That's all good. But the routines don't, the routines don't hold up very well. Routines get interrupted by difficulty. Our best laid plans go awry. The best laid plans of mice and men go awry. The reason that's a famous quote is because it just hits, it hits at everything that's true about life almost. That's why, again, Jesus' words, in this world you will have trouble, resonate so much. We can plan our routines, but those routines are really not much. They don't have much to do with our Christian life because our Christian life is one of faith. And here's, here's the key. Here's the key point. Faith is full of surprises. Faith is full of surprises. And it's a life of living in expectation. The teacher Brendan Manning, the author Brendan, Christian teacher, teacher Brendan Manning, Put it this way, in every encounter, we either give life or we drain it. There is no neutral exchange. There's a Toby Mac song that I just got to know recently called Speak Life. Have you heard it? I recommend you listen to it. It, it was inspired by this insight of Brendan Manning. In every encounter, we either give life or we drain it. We can do nothing, we can do something. Sometimes what we do turns out to be something amazing. Remember the surprise that occurred at the moment when a brother gave away the hamburger? As followers of, as followers of Christ, we have to keep in mind moment by moment in the life of faith that's full of surprises that just as God has spoken life to us, we have the opportunity to speak life to others. How do we do it? It's simple. We do it by living out, trying with the Holy Spirit's help to live out the fruits of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, Self-control. Faithfulness. Let's, I'm going to read them then. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. It's not having to be a, a world-changing, Hall of Fame disciple of Christ who has these things emblazoned on them in neon lights for everybody to see. It's about exercising the fruits of the Spirit in just a daily, quiet way, in unexpected moments when Scott's getting beat up or when somebody wants a hamburger he doesn't need, when your generosity is being tested, when your patience is being tested. It creates a life not of defined by pain, but a life that begins to become defined by surprises of God's goodness 
and expectation that we'll see it unfold despite our pain, despite the disorder that's around us, despite the disappointments. Now, when I was at camp, there was a little kid who grew up, became a missionary, got married, went to the Philippines, and is working with Wycliffe now. And here's what she and her husband wrote in one of their recent letters. It sounded to me like it came off the pages of Scripture almost. We trust that God has great things in store for us, and we rejoice because peace and joy accompany us everywhere we go. And I was reading their letter, you know, their missionary letter. And I read that, and it stopped me. And I thought, really? Wait a minute. What did I just read? Because remember, this life is not that way. Even for us as Christians, this life closes in with all of the things that we see in the story of the prodigal son. And I read those words again. We trust that God has great things in store for us, and we rejoice because peace and joy accompany us everywhere we go. Really? I realized, yeah, that's the way it's supposed to be, right? That's living in the life of the upside surprise. Is that really possible? I remember one time Matthew Daniel Freitas, we were over at the house, he was confronting a hypothesis that seemed difficult. And it was presented to him and he said, it's possible. And that always stuck with me because that's the way I want to think. Is that really possible? See, every day we encounter circumstances and let's, let's wrap up with this. I have one more quick, one more quick uh, illustration, one more quick story from real life for you. We encounter circumstances that hide within the circumstances themselves an upside surprise that we could miss. In the life of faith, because faith is full of surprises, that's just the amazing way it is. We encounter relational circumstances in which we have the fleeting chance to offer life. Do you remember the winter we had last year? Do you remember? Think back. This winter was mild. Last winter was terrible. If you want to put the words, not just to the prodigal son story, but to the, the winter we had, bleak, desolate, relentless, it beat, it beat us. I don't know about you, but it beat me down. But there's a reason it beat me down. More than it would have normally, because I was beaten down. You, you may have experienced a chapter like that during that winter or not, but you've experienced a chapter like that when you are beaten down. And a moment ago, we talked about how your pain is your pain, right? It's all you can, it's all you can have. It's all you can, it's all you can accommodate. It may not be as bad as somebody else's pain, but it's all you can accommodate. It's your pain, and it's, it's too big. And so in this relentless, cold, dark winter, I felt I was living the words of the man in black. Life is pain. And anyone who tells you different is trying to sell you something. You have reasons you felt like that. I had reasons I felt like that. So one Sunday night, I had to go run an errand. And I went to the store close to the house. And it was closed. So I went to the store on the other end, which I knew would be open. I wasn't supposed to go that way. And I felt like this winter was making a lot of us feel. And that night I was completely, 
I felt crushed under this, under this burden. And as I pulled up to the store, and in my, in my weak, my, my beaten state, there was a police car with its lights on and a flatbed truck and a car being impounded. And I saw it. I registered it. And I thought, oh, it doesn't look like fun. And I drove over to the store, parked, and it's cold out, and it's dark. And I walk into the entryway to the store, and the automatic doors open up. And I'm bustling through there, do what I have to do. And I notice I walk past a woman standing there with two little kids, standing inside the entryway of the store, just up against the wall. She has a distraught look on her face. Immediately, the pieces came together. That's her car. Two little kids. Freezing cold night. There was another person with the car. Not a good time for a family. Not a good time. Now, a million times in my life, I would have walked right by. But not this night. Because of where I was. Life is pain. So, not having any clue who she was, but feeling like I didn't need to have any clue. I just said, I'm sorry. And she was crying, and I didn't know what else to say, but I felt like my heart was broken for her. It's good to feel that way for another person, but it doesn't come naturally to us. I think we have to be there before we can feel it. And if the Holy Spirit allows us, we may then do something. But all I could do was say, again, I said a second time, I'm sorry. And I walked into the store. And I was thinking about the things I had to grab and get back home. I thought, I, I got to go back. I got to go back. I hope she's still there. So I, I, I hustled up to the front. I got through the checkout because I didn't want to go back into the entry before I had checked out. I got through the checkout. I I hope she's still there. I didn't know what I would do. I thought, I, I got to give her some money. The car's being impounded. I have no, I mean, this is a terrible, whatever her deal, their situation is, it's not good. I have 40 bucks. That's what I had. So I said, I'm going to just give her the 40 bucks. However it works out, it doesn't matter. And as I'm walking back to see if she's still in the entryway, she's at the ATM, at the exit to the store. And so I walked over to this woman I don't know, and, and, I, and I said out of this, like, this, this, this pain in my own heart, I said, I want you to take this. And she said, no, I'm all, it's going to be okay. My husband, and she started crying. And right at that moment, the screen flashed, transaction denied. And she just like, collapsed. And, you just, and I didn't know anything well put together to say. I just said, take this. She said, no. I said, Maybe God sent me here and put it in her hand and left. And in my, own, in my own experience of this life, I realized it doesn't end with the pain. That's not the whole story. The prodigal son was not just about loss and abandonment and desolation and alienation. Because what happened is that there was an ending to the story. And the father of the prodigal son had it in his power to speak life or to banish his son. 
And he did something. He did something amazing. He welcomed them back with open arms. And they began to celebrate. We're all prodigals. It's a prodigal world. But our Father in heaven, who had the, has the ultimate power to banish us, has chosen to welcome us, to prepare a table before us, to speak life to us, to grant us the, really, the ultimate upside surprise. Because of, because of the surprise of the incarnation. Malcolm Muggeridge, Malcolm Muggeridge said this about what the incarnation, Jesus becoming man, God becoming man in Jesus, what it did. What Jesus did in becoming one of us to die for us, he set a window in the tiny dark dungeon of the ego in which we all languish, letting in a light, providing a vista, and offering a way of release from the servitude of the flesh and the fury of the will into what St. Paul called the glorious liberty of the children of God. Faith is full of surprises. We walk by faith, not by sight. We live in a life of pain, but God meets us in our pain. And as God meets us in our pain, we meet others in theirs. We're not allowed to do nothing. We have to do something. We begin by speaking life by living the fruits of the Spirit and by having expectation that God has great things in store for us and we rejoice because peace and joy accompany us everywhere we go. So let's go out from here, begin to live in expectation, start this week believing in the upside surprise, living in a way that we make sure we speak life to others. As God meets us in our pain, we meet others in theirs, trusting that the surprise of God's presence will show up for each one of us in ways we can't anticipate, in ways we, that will surprise us. And we'll offer to the weary souls around us a few surprises too as we live out the fruits of the Spirit. Keep in mind, you just never know. Kelly is going to come up and do a song for us about this, I think it's called, You Never Know. And as Kelly, begins to, uh, as Kelly begins to close us out with this song, I'll just say a prayer for us. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that you have surprised us in so many ways with your presence, with, with your goodness, and with your provision. We thank you that you surprised us by embracing us when we were lost. You surprised us by becoming a man and dying for us, although you had lived a perfect life. So we, we pray that we would now, as you've met us, Lord, in, in our brokenness, that we would meet others in theirs, and that we would speak life today and in the days ahead. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. When I walked out the door this morning to come to church, I didn't expect I'd be doing this. But you never know what to, what to expect when Matt Kinneman's around. 
We were talking uh, earlier, and I was telling him how I had gone down to Westerly uh, Thursday night to an open mic type of thing that goes on. And he was saying, well, what, what kind of songs did you do? And I, I told him a couple songs that I did. The song I would like to share with you this morning uh, has a special meaning to me. Uh, some years ago, somebody told me, or I heard in a message, that every one of us has at least eight people that are watching our lives. And they're picking up cues from, from our life, maybe things that they'd like to incorporate in their life, something that they see in us. And most of the time, we don't even know who they are, but they're watching us. And uh, this song is about uh, a grandfather that has an impact on his grandson's life that way. And, and the song is called, You Never Know. And uh, in, just in keeping with what Matt was talking about, how uh, to see things as opportunities, like we heard from Matt, he seized an opportunity that God put in his path. And uh, he probably won't know exactly what kind of an impact that had, but uh, when we keep things before the Lord, he uh, he works out the, the uh, works out the the details. Forty years of living, forty years of love, a lifetime full of living for his good Lord up above. Grandpa was a quiet man, rarely spoke a word, but by the things he never said, he was always heard. Quite the man of passion, a believer in the truth. Everything a man should be, the hero of my youth. Though he never meant to, it never crossed his mind that he would sow the seed in me that stood the test of time. You never know who's listening, you never know who sees The results from the time you spend living on your knees You never know just where your life may show You never know Now a little older, and some days even wise, the legacy is passed to me, and now I realize someone may be looking close at everything you do. The road for them that leads to him just might run through you. You never know who's listening. You never know who sees the results from the time you spend living on your knees. 
just where your life may show You never know You never know Oh, you never know who's listening You never know who sees The results from the time you spend Living on your knees Never know, you never know, you never know, you never know, you never know.